0: got a few people already coming in, preparing for the feast, and it's exciting to see that begin to happen, and getting very, very close, but for today, uh, let's go back to the book of Romans, we got down to chapter 13, so uh, we'll pick it up there. He says, let every, he changes the subject from above, talking about enemies and so on. He says here then, in a change of subject, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that be ordained, uh, that be are ordained of God. Uh, that reminds me, I think it's Daniel 4 4, where it says that God puts over the nations the basest of men. So he has a hand in who is over the nations. Now, he allows Satan to do an awful lot, but uh, he has a direction that he wants things to go, and he passes on or allows whoever is put over the nations. He reserves that to himself. So Paul may even be speaking in the light of that, Christ himself said in Matthew 22:21, 21 to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's when he was asked about taxation. <coughs> so, like, a, like the income tax in this nation, it's actually illegal and the IRS should not even be there, but they're entrenched in power whether they're legal or not. <laughs> and... Uh, it's best to submit to that power that has been established. doesn't matter how legal it is. Uh, it, isn't, it certainly isn't a godly uh, function to have an IRS. God set up the financial plan with tithing, and 10% was supposed to run the whole government of Israel. Uh, and they were limited to that. They couldn't go out and borrow from the central banks... Uh, and do deficit spending. They were limited to what the nation produced and 10% of that. And most of that went to, uh, well, 1% went to Aaron's family alone and 9% to the rest of the priesthood. But they were the governing body for the nation. Uh, You didn't have a separation of church and state. You had church. And the church ran it all. So that's the way God set it up. He warned them when they wanted a king. He says, you really don't want this, do you? But you say you do, so I'll give you one. But he's going to exact taxes on you. He just told them right up front. Uh, what, what I allocated and what I set up as a financial system is not going to work with kings because kings decide they have the power to take whatever they want. And that's exactly what happened, of course. But with his financial system, it was beautiful, and it'll be instituted again in the millennium. First tithe is for the whole government. Second tithe is to be sure everybody goes to the feast, all the feasts, and has plenty. And then third tithe is the third and sixth year out of a seven-year cycle, and that makes sure that the widow and the orphan and uh the Levite are taken care of uh, because people in that time even had their own Levite if they had a big family, they just they hired or had a Levite on staff to take care of their spiritual needs, and probably they were paid out of the third tithe that's the way God set it up, and you had a year of release after seven years you didn't have thirty year mortgages on houses or forty year mortgages uh every seventh year, personal debt was released. And then every 50th year, all the land went back to the family that had originally owned it. That way, if somebody was a fool and leased out their land and their family had no use of it, uh, it went back to that family and hopefully didn't have a fool for the next 50 years. But uh, God had it set up so that the poverty problem was generally taken care of although he did say that you will always have the poor among you because there are simply some people who will not work or who are lazy or who are debilitated in some form or fashion. So, uh, but he had a beautiful financial system set up. But now we got the IRS that wants to tax you 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%, or whatever, and like the kings did. But Christ said, all right, if that's what Caesar wants, that's his coins, got his inscription on it. Dollar Bill has uh, some of our famous men on it and some pagan symbols, but it's their system. So we do what we have to do. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. He's allowing it. He's allowed Satan to rule this world, but... What's it going to be like if you set yourself to say, well, I will only obey God and any of the statutes of men men, I won't keep? You're going to be in constant trouble with the law, and you're probably going to spend most of your life in jail uh, if you say, well, I'll just obey God and I'll forget man because God's more important. Now, yes, Acts 5.32 says we should obey God rather than man. So if there is a conflict, it's clear God comes first. Man's laws sometimes conflict with God's laws. Well, even the financial system does for that matter, it conflicts with it. So where do we what do we do? Well, we have to obey God's laws and do things the way He says do them and then we have to deal with the world system the best we can. But put God's way and his financial system, first, then deal with the taxes of the world, uh, the things that the world requires of us. Let's keep God happy, number one, (laughs) and number two, if we can keep the powers that be happy as well, well and good. So he says then, whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God, because God has said that uh, you get along with them as best you can, keep their statutes the best you can, uh, because you're resisting God if you don't. He's the one that allowed them to be there. Were they expected to obey the king once he gave them a king? Yeah. Because God gave them a king because they wanted one. He didn't give them one because they needed one, but because they wanted one. Okay, that's the way you want to be. You'll find out, <laughs> and he let he allowed it. <clears throat> For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will you then not be afraid of the power? Well, there's power there, and we do need to have a certain fear of the statutes of men, uh, lest they find us or throw us in jail or whatever. Uh, Do that which is good, and you shall have praise of the same. You'll get along fine with them. For he is the servant of God to you for good. Governments were set up, at least in theory, to be good for us. To do things for us that needed to be done, to provide infrastructure, roads, whatever. They set them up with good motives in mind. But those quickly got perverted in many, many respects and became evil. And that's always the way it is with the governments of men. They turn to evil. Uh, There's never been so far in the world a government of men that has not to some degree become evil. That was even true in Worldwide Church of God. They were supposedly living by every word of God and trying to keep the statutes of the world as well, but uh, power and human nature combined caused a lot of corruption, and part of that corruption is what caused worldwide to be scattered. So now we are under the gun even more so to do things according to God's way and not depart from that in any way, Financially, morally, uh, technically, whatever. We're supposed to be going that way. And if we do, we'll be successful, ultimately. <clears throat> but let's not make the same mistakes that were made that caused us to be in the condition we're in today. Let's, let's work at getting it better and uh, realize that those powers were put there and need to be followed. If you do that which is evil, be afraid, for he bears not the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. You break the laws of the land, then you pay a penalty. It's just the way it is. So he's advising us uh, to keep those things so that we don't get in trouble with the law. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. What does it do to you when you have, or if you had this dichotomy in your mind, where I should obey God, I should do everything God wants me to do, I should recognize His authority in my life, and I should be compliant in every way to everything He says, and yet I have this totally different attitude toward the world's government. I will do everything I can to not follow it, to be rebellious against it, to uh, have an attitude about it. Now, what does that do to your mind and emotions? In one way, you're trying to be compliant to one side, and you're being uh, adversarial to the other. That's just going to mess you up, (laughs) and you won't be able to maintain the proper perspective on both sides. What if a kid decides, well, I'm going to obey my dad, but I'm not, I don't care about my mother. So he tries to be nice to one and mean to the other. How's this going to work for him? It's just not going to work too well. So he says, the idea is to be compliant and agree with, do as you're asked, whether it's religiously or uh, out in the world. That is to be our attitude of, of resilience, of compliance, of obedience should be our overall attitude, not be fighting against something. Paul Paul got chastened on that one himself. He was trying to get along with the Roman government and yet be an enemy to the church. And God said to him, Why are you kicking against the goads, Paul? Why are you trying to go both ways at once? I think you'll be blind for a while and then we'll talk. (laughs) You know. Uh. So, conscience is there. If you're going against things, that can create a conscience problem. For for this cause, pay you tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. They're allegedly there to help, and if they don't, uh, that's their problem, not yours. You don't have to be in rebellion against them. And again, we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent not the U.S. government or the Russian government or Zambia. We represent God's government. So our first allegiance is to our natural government, which is God. Now, if we're in a foreign country, which any country, any country on this earth, including this nation, are foreign to God. We have a Babylonian government in this nation over Israel. And it's not godly. But we give honor and respect to it as ambassadors for another country. Our citizenship is in heaven. So, it, it is more important. We're, we're dual citizen, aren't we? First, our citizenship is in heaven secondarily to this nation Uh, but as ambassadors for Christ we act like him and we do what he says if there's conflict we do what he says regardless but when you're an ambassador for another country or to another country from here to Turkey or wherever you resign and run for president since I use Turkey but no uh, that's that's what Mickey Haley apparently is trying to do But if you're representing your country in another country, don't you keep the laws of the country you're in, for the most part? I know there is diplomatic immunity, and so some of the laws you're not constrained to keep, but you'll get along a whole lot better if you do, if you don't flaunt that uh, freedom that you have. So, that's what we're to do. Verse 7, Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And really that's what Christ was saying there in Matthew 22. Uh, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, but to God the things that are God's. Uh, he, he broadens it a little bit here, but that's the principle that he's talking about. Uh, and then he says, You owe no man anything but to love one another. The, the you is not in there, but I, it is implied in the Greek that what you do owe something, or what you do owe each other, is to love one another. You do owe that. So be sure and take care of that. For he that loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, is the law done away with? I think it's interesting here that I've never heard a Protestant turn to to verses 8 and 9 of of Romans 13 and quote it in their grace-only doctrine. Uh, He says, For this, or connected with this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he's essentially saying the same thing John says in 1 John 5 3. This is the love of God that you keep the commandments, because the commandments define God's law, or I mean, God's love. So when he mentions love, he immediately starts reciting the Ten Commandments. Looks to me like he's saying, keep them, they're still in effect. If you're going to have the love of God, you have to keep these commandments. Any other kind of love or emotion that is not commandment-based is not God's love. It's just human emotion. So he says you should love one another, and if you do, you're fulfilling the law because you're not doing these things in verse 9, because they aren't love. They are the opposite of it. They hurt people. So sometimes you need to go to the one that they're questioning, in this case Paul, who wrote some things hard to understand. Go to other places where Paul is very clear. Here's one of them. Very plain. There's no way you're going to read that and say, well, I think the law just got done away with. You you know, you're not going to have... There's no room for that. So when they try to, to rest and destroy what Paul wrote and take it out of context, take them to Paul's own words. The law is holy and just and good, for instance. Or this one. The law is comprehended or defined or written in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's what Christ did. He, he was talking about these very things. He, he mentioned some of the Ten Commandments. And then he said, Love God and love your neighbor. And this sums up the law. That's, that's what the law is for, is to define love. So then he says, verse 10, Love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The things that he mentioned in verse 9 do hurt your neighbor. So he says, love is the fulfilling of the law. If you, keep, if you keep all those Ten Commandments in letter and in spirit, you're going to love people because you treat them right. And that, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we thought it was or when we believed it was. Of course, he was, uh, he was speaking here in the beginning of the fifth day. A day as is a thousand years. So uh, they were in the latter end of the 7,000 year plan on the fifth day. First thousand years after Christ was here. Then the second thousand years will commence, at the end of it, will commence the millennium, the seventh thousand years. But God had a, still allowed Paul to think that it was coming in his lifetime. Now, I think we know that it's coming in our lifetime, because the former temple has been destroyed, and there got to be some of us old, still around, that saw it at its best, and be able to compare the latter temple at its best. So we know this is very limited in how far it can go. The leaves are on the trees, and uh, besides that, we understand the plan of salvation, and we know that seven thousand years is—I mean, six thousand years—is about up. Uh, Paul didn't understand that, and God allowed him to operate under that circumstance. But we get the same instruction in the prophecies in Isaiah 51 and 52, where it says three times, "Wake up." first one is aimed at God, for Him to wake up. We want Him to be wide awake as to what's going on so that He might take care of the needs. I think, as I recall, that's kind of the way that's phrased. And then twice it implores us to wake up. It's not that He's asleep. He hasn't gone off somewhere. But uh, we're, what the context is doing is saying, arise and do your wonderful work. It's it's time, and tells us to wake up because it's time. So his admonition is good. Uh, It wasn't good to be asleep spiritually at any time. Now, at the end of Worldwide, it was still over 30 years off, uh, but it wasn't a time to be asleep or lukewarm, was it? Because we were, and look what happened to us as a result. So whether it was in Paul's day or whether it was in our day, this be awake, don't be asleep, is important. And now we're much closer than we were in 1986, by far. And it's closer than uh, we might have thought. Some think now in the church that it's three, 400 years off. I, I don't... I don't see how they can reason that way. When you look at the world the way it is, it's about to fly apart. Economically and militarily and in every other way. If you're awake at all, you're watching the preparation of a coalition against America being formed right now. They're making financial deals among themselves to get rid of the dollar. And if they get rid of the dollar, the dollar is going to go down. That's all there is to it. And they're already doing it. I mean, it's not theory anymore. It's happening as we speak. So that financial crash isn't far off. Can't be. It's not three or four hundred years. I'll guarantee you that. He says, Then the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Very shortly now, God is going to set us on a hill in Zion and tell us to be the light of the world. Uh, if we're like the world and we're sitting there, what kind of a light is that? There's no contrast. If the world can't tell the difference between us and them, how are we shedding any light on this situation? They've got to be able to see a difference. Let us walk honestly, as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in partying and wantonness or immorality, not in strife and envy. Uh, that's, That's stuff from the world. That isn't a light to the world. That's being like the world. So we need to be very careful not to be like the world. But put you on the eternal Emmanuel, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. That's always been a scripture that I liked very much, that verse 14. You might not do something wrong, normally speaking, but you might put yourself in a position where you would, because you want to do this and then you could tell yourself, well, I'm not going to do it. As at the same time, you go to the place where it could happen. So you're making a provision for yourself so that if you do decide to fall off the wagon or the cliff or whatever, you're in a good good position to do it. So we set up our, ourselves up for failure very frequently. This is what I want to do. I know I shouldn't do it, and of course I won't do it, but I'm going to the bar anyway. You know, I'm not going to do the things they do in Las Vegas, but I think I'll just go uh, go to Vegas for a few days, just in case I'm tempted <laughs> with the plethora of things there that are worldly. <coughs> I don't... I don't want to go to Vegas. Everything basically that's there is either immoral, illegal, or expensive. So, what's the point? If I go on a vacation, it's going to be in a mountain somewhere. It's not going to be to a city. Is, is, is that just me? I don't think so. God hates cities. As we know cities. He says "Woe to him in Isaiah 5, that builds house to house and field to field so that a man has no room. Not only are our row houses in the cities wrong, but even field to field with no green belt in between God doesn't like. He wants space between people. Uh, and a lot of our troubles that we have in this world is because Satan has jammed us into cities. And it's not good. So why would you go to a place God hates for a vacation? You're going to a place God hates to do things God hates, if you're not real careful. So, consider what he likes. There simply will not be cities in the millennium, as we know cities. They will not be. Now, the city of Jerusalem will still be there. But you divide a place 1,500 miles across, or 1,500 miles square by 1,500 miles high, and you put 144,000 in there plus some angels, there's going to be a lot of room. 1,500 miles takes you from Los Angeles to the Mississippi it takes you from Mexico even up into Canada and 144,000 well where's a city around that's about that size I I, I'm thinking of you know Tucson and Phoenix and LA, LA's what like 18 million in that basin uh, no that's $18 million in a place that's about 50 miles by 30 miles or thereabouts. And here we're talking 1,500 miles square cubed with only 144,000 plus angels. That, I would love to have a ranch that size, the amount of space that there would be for each person or each, in, each spirit. I'd love it. That would give you, you know, a fourth of Montana maybe. (laughs) Something like that. That's just off the top of the head. Maybe a tenth of Montana. That would be enough, you know. We do things God's way. And we don't make provision for ourselves to do that which our human flesh wants to do. They used to in college, I've used this before. they used to call it cliff walking. You weren't supposed to hold hands with the girls. you weren't supposed to go steady until your happy or senior year was over. Good luck on that one. Uh, the student leaders got away with it, but anybody else couldn't. Uh, so But what they said was, you, you know, you go off campus and you get alone with the girl, and you're walking along the edge of the cliff hoping you fall off, (laughs) you know. Uh, So, same principle we're talking about right here. Don't, Don't put yourself in a position where you'll fall off the cliff. Anyway, chapter 14 changes the subject again. Him that is weak in the faith. So we're discussing here people who are weak in the faith. Maybe they were very new to the truth. Uh, Maybe they hadn't learned much yet, but they were still in the position where they weren't strong in faith. Uh, For whatever reason, they were still weak or unknowing or whatever. Uh, There is a place that somebody used on me not long ago that says, well, uh, we don't have to keep the law. All Paul said was you just don't have to eat things uh, offered to idols or blood. And... That's the extent of it. Anything else is okay. No. Paul was talking to brand new people, and he didn't want to lay everything on them at once and drown them. So he started out with just a couple of things, you know. Let's let's get this under control first, and then we'll move on. Now, right here in the context is the answer to that supposition that people make. Because this Roman church... Was filled with, yes, some Jews, but a lot of Gentiles who were new converts. And what did he tell them? He told them not to commit adultery and not to kill and not to steal and bear false witness and not to covet and all the rest of the commandments as well. So he was laying more on them in this situation than he laid on somebody else in another situation. So, he was trying to be all things to all people and give them what they could chew. You know, some can only handle milk, others can handle meat. You you give a little baby meat and he'll choke to death or can't digest it, give him milk, that's the age that he is. So, he's using the same principle here in discussing a subject somebody who's new, somebody who's weak, who doesn't understand yet, receive you. I don't put them away because they don't understand something or because they're still weak. Isn't there a scripture where he says, support the weak? Yeah. Ephesians, somewhere back there. So receive them, but not to doubtful disputations. They're weak, receive them, Don't sit around arguing with them or trying to tell them where they're wrong or what they really ought to be doing. Give them time to learn. And maybe they will. So then he goes on and introduces a subject. For one believes that he may eat all kinds of foods, all things, another who is weak eats herbs. So vegetarianism, in Paul's view and in God's view is someone who is new and weak. Now, all through the Bible, it shows that meat is okay for human beings to eat. And even discussed which ones we can eat and which ones we can't. But meat is certainly okay for us to eat. Now, with some people, they think it's wrong. And it's not just meat per se, but there are people who don't think you should eat eggs or milk or any animal product. Not just the animal itself, but an animal product. That you should eat nothing but veggies. Okay, if they want to believe that, let them believe that. But I'm a carnivore. But if they think they should eat carrots and broccoli only, then I'll let them eat their carrots and broccoli only. If it doesn't offend them, I'll eat meat in front of them. Now, if it does offend them, I need to be careful not to until they learn that it's okay to do that. Because we don't want to offend. And he makes that point not only here, but in other places as well, when discussing such things. Now, he doesn't confine it to meat here. He says all things. He leaves it general. Because vegetarians do have sometimes bias against any animal product, not just meat. And he doesn't mention meat here. All things, all types of food in other words, but some veggies only. Let not him that eats despise him that eats not. Don't have an attitude to somebody just because they don't eat the foods you want. That's okay. Okay. They can eat what they want. It's their business. Don't try to force what you like on them. Some people don't drink. Well, maybe you do. But it's not right to force drink on them uh, and to do it in front of them if it offends them. I know running a bed and breakfast here now, I, I try to judge sometimes what people's bias is because I had a situation the other night where a couple came in, they were from a foreign country, and they said, uh, would you like to have uh, gin and tonic? Well, they brought the bottle out and they brought the tonic out, so I says, here's some glasses. Yeah, I'll have a... But then here comes another couple in, and they're attending the University of Utah. So I'm thinking they may be Mormons. You know, a good chance they'd be Mormons. And uh, and I I wondered because here was the gin bottle sitting on the table here and they went to bed right away. So I'm wondering, oh, they were Mormons and that offended them so they went to bed right away. I can see a bad review coming on that one. Well, next morning I found out that they they are not Mormons And they would have loved to have sat down and had a drink, but they had gotten up at four and traveled all day, and they were very tired. And I said, (laughs) got through that one. So, when you're dealing with people, I mean, they're not church or anything else like these people were, but you have to consider their bias and, and whether or not what you do offends them. And I'm sure I'll get some vegan through here one of these days that eats nothing but herbs, and uh, whether they'll like these things on the wall above us or not is another question uh, because somebody ate those, oh my, you know. I'm going to put the picture of them on the website so that they see it before they get here, and that'll weed out the ones that don't like it is the way I'm going to handle that one, don't need their business, don't have to have it. So, it's all about attitude, he's saying here. Don't dispute it. You know, don't argue with them. Don't tell them, well, it says back here that it's okay to eat meat. So, you better eat meat because God says it's okay. No, give them time. They're weak. They're new. Don't bug them about it. And that could be herbs or alcohol or whatever else, maybe. Let not him which eats not judge him that eats, for God has received him. If God called them, then he knows what their bias was, and he opened their eyes to the truth. They may be new, they may be weak, but God has brought them in. So why should you bug them? If God brought them, why should you bug them? Who are you that judges another man's servant? We find this all through Scripture. If they're God's servant, and God called them, then who are we to criticize what God has done? Because we have all kinds of people in the church, always have had, with all kinds of different attitudes and biases and things they like or don't like, or want or don't want. And they even retain sometimes their Protestant teachings. In the back of their mind, even though they may technically submit to what we're doing. I think that's pretty obvious, and how many went back to Protestant churches when the church blew apart. (laughs) They'd never truly changed what they believed. So you're going to have all kinds. But God called them, let Him work with them. And you work with them the way God would work with them. To His own master, He stands or falls. God's going to judge them. It's not your job. Yes, he shall be held up, for God is able to make him stand. So here he is. He's new. He's weak. God will hold him up. God will take care of him. It's not your responsibility. When did it become our responsibility? When did somebody else's salvation become our responsibility? Never has. Never will be. That's between them and God. Can we... Sharpen iron? Can we teach? Can we help them? Sure. But it's God's judgment. So be careful in becoming condemnative or judgmental towards someone because they don't have the same standard that you have learned is okay. They may learn it someday. Then again, they might not. Somebody going to miss out on the kingdom of God because they never learned to eat steak? No, it's how they treat their neighbor. He's already said that. Loving one another. So, it's not, a judge, it's not a salvational issue. Now, there are some things that are. Carrots aren't. The Sabbath is. You know, there, there's a difference between the things that God say are salvational and things that are optional. And whether you eat meat or not is optional. Then he uses another example in verse 5. One man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Uh, He's not talking about God's holy days or the Sabbath here. That's one of the Ten Commandments mentioned in verse 9. We have to keep the Sabbath. We have to keep the holy days. He's talking about optional things here in the whole context. Vegetarianism is an option. And he hasn't even mentioned meat yet. Just other things other apart from vegetables whatever they might be and that could be meat or it could be alcohol for instance it could be other things that are okay that God says are okay but somebody else might not thinks right so God tells us when it does come to meat what's clean and unclean he makes that very clear but the question here is not about clean and unclean the question is whether you eat meat or not meat or veggies Same is true with certain days. What does the world keep out there? There are some that may not be necessarily wrong. Now, Christmas and Easter, God condemns in Scripture. So we don't have an option there. But Fourth of July, Thanksgiving, uh, what else? Patriots Day, Labor Day, President's Day... Uh, the banks take holidays on. They esteem those days better than others. Uh, some could care less, like me. Uh, they're just another day to me. Uh, I don't care. Now, God's holy days, though, are very, very important. They mean a lot. But some people, every little holiday that comes along, oh, they're into it. Uh, you now, the pagan ones, God says no. No. The things that might be okay. Hey, somebody says, I want to keep the Cinco de Mayo. Uh, That's probably a religious one, though, in Mexico. I don't know too much about it or don't remember. Uh, Or whatever day some other country might keep. Okay, you keep it or you don't keep it. It's up to you as long as it doesn't infringe with God's Word. So he says, don't judge them on that either. He that regards the day regards it to the eternal, and he that regards not the day to the eternal, he does not regard it. And the same, so whether it's days or foods, he says, don't be judgmental on those things if they're optional. He that eats, eats to the eternal, for he gives God thanks. And he that eats not to the eternal, he eats not and gives God thanks. So whether you eat meat or whether you just eat vegetables, you give thanks to God if you're converted and give thanks to Him for all the good and perfect gifts that come from above. So, okay, be thankful for your carrot. Be thankful for your hamburger. Uh, pray over it before you eat it. Uh, but, but don't sit down at the table and say, I'm a vegetarian, therefore they asked me to say the blessing. So here's how I'll do it. God, please bless the carrots and curse the meat. This isn't going to work in human relations, you know. It's just it's not going to work. For whether we live, we live to the eternal. And whether we die, we die to Him. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we're His. So let's not judge each other about things that are optional. Some days are optional. Some foods are optional. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Now, there's another place that we read recently that says God is the God of the living, uh, which Christ used to show that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, but they will live again. So, in that sense, he was actually saying both, right? They're dead right now, but they're going to live again. But he was trying to make the point to them that, yeah, those guys are dead. Uh, so, since they're dead, they're not alive, and they're not your leaders right now. You, you can't claim Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they're dead. And God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. But he's going to resurrect the dead, and then he'll be the God of those who are alive. You don't need God when you're dead, right? Right? What good is God when you're dead? (laughs) You have no thoughts. You're not conscious. You're just dead. So you don't need God. I need Him as long as I'm alive, but the second I'm dead, I don't need Him anymore. Except to be there to resurrect me. It's the only thing I need Him for. Because as a dead man, I don't have any needs for food or shelter or clothes or anything else. I don't need God then. Never thought of it that way, but that's the way it is. When you're resurrected, then you're going to need Him. Verse 10, But why do you judge your brother? That's the whole point of this chapter is people were getting on each other about whether they, what kind of foods they ate and maybe what days they kept. I don't think that was the question. He just brought up it as another example. Of, you know, some days are okay to keep it's not against the law of God but you don't have to keep them so don't get on somebody if they do I have a question about Thanksgiving I, I think that there's a very good chance that it's pagan in origin but I've not been able to prove that to the point that I would say you should not keep Thanksgiving so I don't esteem it very much because I question it to some degree. (coughs) But if you want to have turkey and potatoes, fine. If you invite me, I might come and eat them with you because I like turkey and potatoes, but uh, I try to thank God for every day that comes along. So why do I need one set aside to give thanksgiving? Is that the only day of the year they do it? Yeah, some of them, that's probably it. Maybe the only day of the year that they actually say a blessing before the meal is on thanksgiving. Well, maybe Christmas and Easter too, but but there's no question about those two. They're condemned in Scripture. But Thanksgiving, eh, maybe, maybe not. If you want to esteem it higher, and t- unless I could prove to you that it was pagan, I'm not going to tell you, nor am I going to judge you for doing it or condemn you for it, because I'm kind of on the fence about it, and maybe I'll lean over the fence and have some turkey, but uh, but I don't. I don't put much stock in it, let's say, or I don't esteem it highly. I esteem God's holy days very highly. That's the difference. Labor Day, I usually work. Isn't that what it says? Labor Day. (laughs) A day off from labor is what it should be named, I guess. But if you're working for a company and they give the day off, I'm not going to come in to work. You take the day off, thank you. Uh, That's okay. We'll esteem it that much. So he's not talking about God's law or God's statutes here. He's talking about things that are optional that somebody might not understand yet. Or maybe their conscience is still, they really thought it was wrong. They may have thought it was totally ungodly to eat meat or it was totally ungodly to eat meat because it was bad for your body. They might not even recognize God in there. Uh, But they're young, they're new, they're weak. Okay, let them think that way. Because if they think it's wrong, then it's against their conscience, and that which is not of good conscience is sin. So you might be encouraging them to do something that with their conscience level would be sin to them. And you don't want to do that. So why do you judge your brother? Why do you set it at nothing your brother? Or put him down? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He's the one that makes the decisions. And you and I, since salvation is now upon the house of Israel, you and I are already standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Our judgment will be finished by the time of the first resurrection. It'll be done. So we're standing before Him right now. Each day of your life and mine, God is judging us. Judgment is always over a period of time. For it is written, as I live, says the Eternal, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Before the great white throne judgment is over, that will have occurred. It's happening in in waves, or each in his own order. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God, not to each other, but to God, is the point. Let us not, therefore, judge one another anymore. Quit doing it. Don't have attitudes about each other. Uh, Everybody's learning at his own pace. You can encourage, you can help, you can teach, you can guide, but don't condemn and don't uh, put them down for it. But judge this, rather, Here's something, he says, that's judging each other, you shouldn't do, but here's something that is important. Don't put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in your brother's way. You're not to take offense, you're also not to give offense. So be careful. He says, I know and am persuaded by Emmanuel that there is nothing common of itself. Unclean is a bad translation there. The word common is in the Greek, and this word in the Greek means common or shared by all is one of the definitions. Shared by all. I'm persuaded by Christ that there is nothing that can't be shared by all. It can also mean profane, that there is nothing that is profane of itself, now remember here he's talking about vegetarianism and other forms of food he's not talking about clean and unclean meats because he's already declared them to be profane and not to be shared by anybody so there's nothing that is profane of itself whether it be herbs or meat but to him that esteems anything to be not to be shared or is unclean or common to him, it is and he uses a different word here uh, the the word here is cosmos up above it's uh, it's common is but here cosmos means of the world we used to use cosmos to say of the earth earthy the things of the world so what Paul is saying is if somebody think something shouldn't be shared or eaten, uh, then it is of the world. It's the thing that's out in the world, because the world has its own ideas. And some of the things that are out in the world that are okay, uh, you're saying are not. Or you're, if, it's, if it's of the world and not of God, then it is that way. It is unclean to you vegetarianism is not a doctrine of God, in other words. He doesn't say you should only eat vegetables. There are many examples in the Bible that show eating vegetables and many that show eating meat. So God's doctrine is that all forms of food are okay, and then he delineates in those categories which is good and which is not. I mean, if you were to There are some herbs that are not okay. There are some herbs, if you eat, will kill you or destroy your mind or whatever. And there are some meats that God says you shouldn't eat. So he leaves it up to us to some degree to determine which veggies we ought to eat. But he tells us which meats we can eat and not eat. A man learns pretty quickly whether you should eat certain mushrooms or not, you know. This 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 one isn't food list. This is not on it. It's on the I don't love my neighbor list. Feed it feed it to him. But if your brother be grieved with your food, now the word here is not meat, in the Greek it's food. If your brother be grieved with your food, whether it be veggies or meat, now walk you not in love. Destroy not him with your food for whom Christ died. Subject's not meat at all, it's food. Uh, Vegetables are food. Meat is food. Alcohol is food. There are various types of food. So he uses the word food here. Meat is, in, in the early King James, in that era, in the 1600s, you sat down at meat, was your word for sitting down to eat. We say we'll sit down for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, usually. But we don't say I'm ready for meat normally. We say I'm ready for food. Would be an American idiosyncrasy. (coughs) Yeah, yeah, sometimes we say I could eat a horse. Uh, Well, that's not approved meat. (laughs) It's just an expression. But there are times I say I want some beef. I want a steak. That's more, I don't want just food, I want a steak. So I'll be explicit. You have to do that in a restaurant. You have to tell them what it is you want. If you say, bring me food, they go back to the kitchen and say, I don't know what to send them, just here, give them this. No, you tell them what you want. So he says... All types of food are okay, uh, but some God himself regulates not according to the type, but, uh, well, not according to the, the genre, let's say, but according to the type of the meat or the type of the vegetable. So, don't be upset with other people is, is the, point of the whole point of the thing. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. It's good to eat meat. It's also good to eat vegetables. Uh, don't give a people a hassle over it. And then he sums it up. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So if you're sitting around arguing about what kind of food somebody should eat or not, and tell them they're a sinner if they eat meat, or they're a sinner if they don't eat meat, uh, you're causing disputation and argument and chaos. So he says, hey, don't worry about what people eat. As long as it's scriptural, it's okay. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he that is in these things serve, uh, serves Christ and is acceptable to God and approved of men. So be sure you're serving Christ. Christ in how you eat, in what days you esteem above others, and so on. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. For food, for food destroy not the work of God. God is trying to give us what? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, so on. Those are the things that He's trying to get us to have and arguing about who eats what does not promote the fruit of the Spirit. So, don't destroy the work that God is beginning in someone toward having the fruit of the Spirit by arguing with him about what he eats. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eats with offense. So, he says, it's, it's okay all types of food are okay. Veggies, meat, alcohol. What other category might I mention? I guess that pretty well covers what we do. Huh? Fruit. Well, yeah, fruit, vegetables. Uh, don't, don't argue about those things and cause somebody to be offended and lose what they're trying to gain spiritually. It is good neither to eat flesh. Now he does mention meat here because this is a vegetarian meat question even though he calls it food pretty much all the way through. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. So he uses those three I have been here. Food, vegetables, and alcohol. Because some people will stumble over alcohol. They've been taught all their lives that it's a sin, demon rum. It's a sin to have alcohol. So you sit down in front of them and start drinking wine or something and that will tend to offend them because they think it's a sin. And it may take them a long time to get to the point where they say, well, God knows more than the Baptists and therefore it's okay and then they have their first drink finally. I know with my dad and mom, they thought, Alcohol was evil. And I was the one that brought a can of Coors home from a car wreck that I found out in the weeds people had tried to get rid of before the cops came. And I uh, brought it home. Because we'd read, it's okay to drink alcohol now that we were in the church. And that can of Coors sat in that refrigerator for, I don't know, it was probably skunky by then. I don't know how long it was in there. Months and months it sat there because everybody a little bit of... I know the Bible says it's okay, but, but the conscience had to be retrained. It took time. And then one Saturday night, as I recall, out came that Coors can, and it got opened, and there was two adults and five children there. And uh, I think Dad and Mom are afraid that if we shared that among seven, somebody was going to get drunk. They they had no no clue what amount of alcohol did what. So, uh, it was a conscience issue. And I think if some church people who had been around longer and had come into our house back then and gotten out the whiskey bottle and started pouring drinks, it would have bothered them. They might have known intellectually, but they didn't know emotionally yet. The conscience had not been retrained. And that's, that's all Paul's talking about here is people have to have time to retrain and accept that, oh, okay, maybe that is okay. And maybe it's okay for you, but I'm still a little leery. Okay, give me some... Six months from now, I might have a hamburger with you, but right now I'm having a veggie burger. You know? That's all he's saying. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Be thankful that you have faith in God, that it's okay to eat meat and drink wine. But don't push it on anybody. Happy is he that condemns not himself in that thing which he allows. So he says it's okay to eat meat and drink wine, but don't cause somebody else to stumble over it. Do without it. Sit down and have a veggie burger with him if it's going to offend him if you have the other. Most people today have been taught to be tolerant. So they'll have their veggie burger while you have the meat burger. Nobody's offended. But you might, with new converts, have a problem. And he that doubts is damned if he eat, because he eats not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So if it's still against his conscience, it would be a sin for him to do it. So why are you encouraging him to sin? Bottom line, end of the chapter. You know, don't cause somebody to sin. Something may be legal. You may see it's legal. But if it's not legal in somebody's conscience, it's still not legal. Because he's offending what he thinks is right. And that is sin. Is when you break your conscience and your character. So give them time to learn. In the meantime, be careful not to offend. Do you give a Mormon a beer or not? And how many Mormons are there. One Mormon will drink it. Two Mormons will turn it down because they don't want to be hypocrites in the eyes of the other. So, you've got to judge the situation. Should I do this or should I not do this? Is somebody going to take offense? I better not. Okay. It's about that. It's not about clean and unclean meats. It's about foods in general, and vegetarianism in particular is the whole subject. So don't let anybody tell you this is about clean and unclean meats. It's not even mentioned in there. And in the Greek, the word unclean that's used doesn't fit anyway. It was a mistranslation. Okay, that's it for today.